0: and welcome to Spy Hard's Podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, rocking out to some biscuit. That's right. We're back on our continuing mission to explore the Mission Impossible films. And we're back with another Spy Master interview. Uh, Cam,
1: who do we have joining us? This is a very cool one. We are talking to Mitchell Lieb, who is the former president of music and soundtracks for the Walt Disney Studios company. And at one point in time, produced the Mission Impossible 2 soundtrack and played a key part in bringing together, I think, what was one of the definitive 2000s hard rock soundtracks to
0: any movie. And it's quite a story as to how it all came together. Yeah, this is a big interview. A lot of stories in here, a lot of stories about Metallica, Limp biscuit and uh, how they both interacted with one uh, Tom Cruise. So uh, I, I think without further ado, Cam, let's get to it. And joining us now on the show, the man behind the soundtrack that I've spent a whole week talking about this week, it is Mr. Mitchell Lieb. Hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing great, you guys. How are you doing? Living, living the, the dream. dream. We both said it simultaneously. That's wonderful right there.
2: <laughs> I love it. I, I usually say, when people say, hey, so how you doing? I say, I'm living the dream one aggravating day at a time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: living the dream. Let, let's see how this interview goes before we call it aggravating. We can, okay. it, it could go either way. You never know. You never know. Fair I'm, enough. I, I mean, I, we've been talking about Mission Impossible 2 this week and that's that's really like the crux of why we're here and getting to sort of the core of how that album came to be because it's a very important album for a lot of people Mission Impossible fans and and more than that it was you know for me it was a big part of my sort of teenage years but I want to go back a little bit to hear from you Mitchell yeah getting into soundtracks in the first place getting into Hollywood getting into the world of filmmaking how did it all get started for you?
2: man well it's a long story uh because i was definitely an outlier i um you know kind of started as a bad guitar player thinking i was going to be the next eric clapton or jimmy page Mm -hmm. and um then when i was 15 my older brother took me to long beach arena to see an eric clapton concert and i sat there in the seats and i went oh holy shit two big problems. Number one, I am never going to be that fucking good. (laughs) And number two, I'm a curly haired Jewish kid from the Valley. I'm never going to be cool. Like cool is not something you can try to be. Cool is cool is something you are. You can't court cool. You either are or you're not. And I was never going to be a six foot tall, long blonde haired junkie from England. So those were my big problems and i had a realization on the drive home from long beach arena that okay wake up call got to find a way to be around it without being it so i kind of decided right then and there that i wasn't going to be what we would call talent you know in my book talent is the songwriter talent is the composer talent is the producer talent is the director Talent is the editor that, like, that's talent. Okay. And yeah, I'm a producer, but we really, we're putting talent together. That's what a producer does. So, you know, I kind of had this realization very early on and just knew that I wasn't going to be it. So, how, what was I going to do next? And I was dating this girl and she took me down to Hollywood to see this friend of hers who was in a band at this rehearsal studio. And I'm watching this band and I was really into progressive hard rock. And probably because I had two older brothers six and eight years older than me. And they brought up a a form of music into the house that was way beyond my years Mm -hmm. where all my friends were listening to soft pop, you know, top 40 music. I was banging on Led Zeppelin. I was listening to Crosby, Stills, Nash, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. I was living through the psychedelic era of the sixties when I, in the early seventies. And so, um, you know i uh I, I was really into that kind of progressive hard rock music and i went down to this rehearsal and it was this progressive hard rock band kind of like genesis or Gentle giant and i loved them and i said to them jokingly i was 16 i said to them jokingly hey man where can i buy your record hmm. and the guitarist said What are you kidding? Like record? We don't have a record deal. We don't have a publishing deal. We don't even have a manager. And I'm like, why is that? You guys are great. And they said, wow, we're glad you think so. You want to manage us? And they said it as a joke. And I took it serious as a heart attack. And I started booking them gigs around town. This is back in the era when driver's licenses were paper. Mm-hmm. like washed them in your jeans that you had to go get a new one they were paper you had to laminate them to make them last and I took an exacto knife and I switched a digit in my address with my birth year to make me 22 so that I could book them in at the Roxy at Kazaris, at you know the the like all the local L.A. Um, famous clubs of that era, and this was 1976, and I started booking them around town and just kind of fell into this management thing and not just fell into the management thing, I fell into the lifestyle of the music business, the lifestyle of music. I moved in with them and was sleeping on the floor up uh, up in the Hollywood Hills, right underneath the Hollywood sign, and just got consumed with it. And that kind of led me to my first job in the business, which was a file clerk at Electra Asylum Records, the home of Queen, the Eagles, Jackson Brown, the Cars, Linda Ronstadt, just one of the great artist rosters of that era and kind of being exposed to it and watching David Geffen pace the halls. And you know sometimes in life, Your mentors don't even know they're mentoring you because it's on the mentee to have thirst. It's on the mentee to go for it, to want it bad, to like nothing, let nothing stop them. And that's kind of just who I became. I loved it so much. I woke up every morning without a choice. Um, I wasn't born rich. I wasn't born related. So I had a lot of very fearful, starving days and kind of managing this band and i started managing another band and then i kind of got this job at a small production publishing management company and started learning about music publishing and it was actually working there that i got my first exposure to placing songs of the writers that were signed to our publishing company in movies fast times at Ridgemont High. Rocky with Survivor and Eye of the Tiger. I got my first kind of experience in, oh, wow, the power of when you take a piece of music and put it to a piece of film, you create a third dimension that didn't exist prior to bringing these two pieces together. And I just loved it. I loved that idea of lighting up the screen and the audio in a theater. And um, so I, I got a little bit of taste of that. So I was still managing bands and pretty much still a hundred percent in the pure music business, management, publishing, production, working for this small company whose claim to fame was they discovered Billy Joel. Mm. And so they had a long going royalty, exactly. They like, like talk about fuck you money. I mean, this place was making millions, <laughs> this place was making millions of dollars a year without doing anything just checks falling in from the billy joel album sales and um and i think uh it was kind of doing that and the experience with the film end of things that kind of led me into doing um some independent music supervision so i kind of helped music supervise my first films when I was like I think I was 18, 19 years old. I I also, as you probably have gathered, um I, you know, I didn't graduate high school. Mm. I didn't uh, I didn't go to college. I I went head on into my passion recklessly um without real um thought to it and just immersed myself in it. Which, like I said, you know, left, it led to some fearful times because, you know, I was kind of broke and just kind of bumping my way through. Yeah, I was getting a little bit of a paycheck, but it really wasn't enough to do much. And um, so kind of through a bunch of happenstance, including Billy Joel kind of misfiring on a couple of albums and the company running out of money and no longer able to pay me, kind of forced me back into my own business, and having to scramble for work. and But now I had a bigger portfolio of things I could do. I could look for jobs at publishing companies. I could look for a job at a record company. I could look for jobs for a management company. And every Tuesday in The Hollywood Reporter, um, there was films in production. There was a films in production guide. And so I used to go down the films in production guide and cold call cold call producers, production companies, and studios. Do you need any help? Do you need any songs for your movies? Do you need any composers? Do you need any music supervisors? Can I help? Can I help? Can I help? And one day, uh, I cold called Disney. And I got on the phone a new business affairs music guy, and he said some new management had just come in, and they're going to start making a lot of movies. But in the meantime, they were launching this new thing called the Disney Channel. And they had licensed in a bunch of episodes of they had made a deal with Garrison Keeler and a Prairie Home Companion and with Ozzy and Harriet Estate and bought licensed in a hundred different episodes. They needed someone to independently clear the music. Would I be interested? And I was like, how much does it pay? Fifteen hundred bucks an episode. Done. I'm in. <laughs> so, I, so I kind of did that as a consultant to do. Dis- Disney specifically in music clearance for the Disney channel, the brand new Disney channel and started clearing music for them while I was managing a bunch of bands. And, you know, my bands, to be honest with you, they were great, but I was green. I wasn't capable of getting anybody a record deal when I was 18 years old. I you know, it it was great experience. And now as I look back on it, there was a certain reality to it um, of where I was in life and, that these bands had put their faith in me. And I kind of feel guilty about it today. I didn't then, but I feel today. And, you know, so when Disney all of a sudden then offered me a job, you know, I was like 23 years old now, 22. I like, couldn't been consulting them for a couple of years. They offered me a job in-house. And I was like, well... You know, my pa- my mom was like, Mitch, just take the job, get health insurance. It's a steady paycheck. Disney's a great company. You know, like any good parent would tell their struggling, uneducated, no college degree, no high school diploma. Schmuck, take the job for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> and so I took the job. And, you know, that caused me to have to cut ties sure. because I couldn't manage bands and do the corporate job. So... You know, and I remember when I took the job, it was a real depressing day for me. I felt like, and this is a good life lesson for you listeners, Um, you know, right turns get you to the wrong places and wrong turns get you to the right places. And sometimes, you, you, you know, you make a decision out of desperation. I made that decision to join Disney as the administrator of music clearance, pretty much the lowest rung on the ladder of a music department. And I agreed to take that job. And the day that I took the job, I cried because I thought I'd given up on my dream to be David Geffen. I'd given up on my dream to be Irving Azoff. you pussy. You're doing it for a paycheck. You're doing it for medical and dental insurance. Okay, well, you'll do it until you get back on your feet and then you'll quit and you'll go do your thing. Well, you know, at the time, I thought it was the worst decision I'd ever made in my life. You know, fucking... You know, on and off, 30 years later, I'm president, uh, you know, of the music division at, at Disney, working on the biggest films in the business, working for the best company in the business, making bank, getting tons of stock, you know, buying a Malibu out, you know, like, you know, so, so again, sometimes the decisions you make in life sometimes for survival that might look like bad moves or disappointing moves you know lead you to a place that you would have never gotten to had you not taken that 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 bad decision in the first place and conversely decisions you make like i was at disney now i'm at disney for six years king of soundtracks pretty woman good morning vietnam beaches cocktail you know selling crazy amounts of soundtracks for other labels because we didn't really have our own record company at that time not a contemporary record company we had walt disney records but they only did kitty stuff it was long before hollywood records and um you know I'm, I'm soundtrack king and here comes pretty woman and everybody gives me the credit emi offers me a job as senior vice president of anr and i'm thinking wow this is what i always wanted yes <laughs> yes and yes I break my contract with Disney. They didn't want to let me go. They let me go because I was a good guy and I always worked hard for them and they could tell that I wanted to do it. And so here I take this job with EMI that I think is the best move I've ever made. Dude, I was there for two months before I realized what a joke. Now I knew what EMI stood for. Every mistake imaginable. It was the first record (laughs) company in the business. I mean... I'm telling you, it was the worst record company in the business. I couldn't get any soundtracks. They had no money. It was a fucking joke. And then they sold the company and it got merged. And all of a sudden, the same people who hired me are now all fired. I'm the only one who's kept. A whole new team of people came in and I just did not dig it. And that was when um, Clive Davis approached me. And um, I had such respect for Clive because that was a guy, you know. I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to go suck off this guy for a while. I'm gonna, I'm going to ment, <laughs> I'm going to be mentored by Clive Davis, and he's not even going to know it. And so I took the job for Clive as senior vice president of West Coast A&R and soundtracks, and went in there and helped finish the bodyguard. And then we kind of hit a rough patch, meaning that. Um, you know, the roster was kind of struggling and he wasn't allowing me to pick up soundtracks. And Clive was very, anybody who's ever worked for Clive will say the same thing. And listen, he's the greatest, one of the greatest record executives in the history of the business. So I'm I'm not going to dog him. I'm just going to say, when you work for Clive, it's his way or the highway. And Mm. basically you can walk in and say, like, I, I brought in this movie called Groundhog's Day. And I said, dude, Groundhog's Day. This is going to be a classic. It's going to last forever. There's an end credit song spot. You know, we have this artist. I want to find the right song, have him do the end credit. I'm telling you, this is going to be a good thing for the artist. Clive watches the movie. He says to me, "It's not going to make a dollar." Hmm. Wait, Clive, that's not the way the movie business works. I mean, if you're saying it's not going to succeed, I mean, it's going to make ten million dollars probably in its opening weekend. It's going to. I'm telling you, this movie isn't going to make a dollar and so there were about three or four of those that came along where i realized gosh as bad as i thought emi was this is kind of even worse because it's not going anywhere what am i gonna fucking do and then out of the blue um armand milshan who produced pretty woman and owns a company called regency who brought his own international funding to the table, owned all his international rights, including the music publishing rights, um, approached me and said, look, I'm doing 13 films a year. I need an in-house music guy. You'll produce all the soundtracks. I have an electro-distributed label. Come and run the whole damn thing. Publishing, the music department, the record thing. leave, Leave Clive. Come back to the movie business. Come back to the movie business. And I went back there and now all of a sudden I'm working on films like JFK. I'm working on films. I'm doing, you know, natural born killers. I'm doing like, all of a sudden I'm doing these great movies, boys on the side, empire records. I'm selling empire records. I sold like 3 million soundtracks from a movie that was only released in like seven theaters. <laughs> it's become like a cult. That's <laughs> um, now going to be a Broadway musical that I have a little piece of.
1: Oh, nice.
2: And um. So I'm loving working for Arnon. It's about three years into it. I was touching about, I was doing about 15 films a year, including soundtracks. And then um, my contract came up and we were renegotiating for me to stay. And Disney came after me. And they said, look, since you've been gone over these last five, six years, we started a record company called Hollywood Records. It's a fucking disaster. No, like, Number number one is it's not succeeding in the artist business, but more importantly, it's a big political problem for us because we want to keep all our soundtracks in-house. We don't want to give them to Atlantic. We don't want to give them to Electro. We don't want to give them to Universal. We don't want to give them. We want to keep them in-house, and the filmmakers will not deal with them. They don't want to deal with them. We need a guy in there that people will want to deal with. You're the guy. Come back to Disney. And so they made me a deal to come back, as senior vice president of Hollywood Records to reboot the record company, and that was in 1995. So when I went back to Hollywood Records, something that I didn't anticipate was they had a head of music who hated Hollywood Records because she was promised that she was gonna get to run Hollywood Records, okay? Mm. But, But the chairman wasn't really being straight with her, and all of a sudden I come in And I'm like, hey, this is going to be great. Kathy, we get along. You're the head of music. I'm the head of soundtracks. I'll do all your soundtracks. We're going to have a great relationship. And she said to me, Mitchell, you will never get, nothing against you. I like you. You will never get one of our soundtracks because I will make sure that every project, I will find an artist on Sony, or an artist on Atlantic that we can't get unless we give them the soundtrack, and then the chairman of the studio will let me give them the soundtracks. You are never gonna get any of my good soundtracks. So Armageddon goes to Sony because of Aerosmith, okay? Um, Eric Clapton's song, if I could change the world from Phenomenon, soundtrack goes to Warner Brothers. Up close and personal, goes to Sony because of Celine Dion, like Kathy orchestrated major artists in every case that the movie marketing division wanted, that the filmmakers wanted, that the studio wanted as promotional vehicles. And they were giving away the soundtracks. And now I'm sitting here, i gone going back to Disney going, oh, fuck. Hmm. Like, this is just ridiculous. Now I'm back at Disney, the company that I love. I'm working for Hollywood Records, okay? And a kiddie label, Walt Disney Records. I can't get any of the soundtracks for my own label. What am I gonna fucking do? I know, I'll go start doing soundtracks for other studios who don't have record companies. Okay, well, let me look at the business. Well, 20th Century Fox doesn't have a record company. Ah, Paramount doesn't have a record company. Ooh, I'm going to go take their heads of music out to lunch and tell them I will do every fucking soundtrack that they want to put out, I will pay for, I will do as a way to create product flow. And of course, the people at Disney and at Hollywood Records are like, Mitch, please figure out a way to make money. You have a giant checkbook behind you. Just go do it. Do whatever you want to do. Do it however you want to do it. So I had the best of that world of sorts Mm -hmm. in funding and in authority. I didn't have my own movies, but now I had a path. Now I'm going to go out and make friends with Paramount and Fox were my first two targets. So um, I started grooming a guy named Harlan Goodman, who was the head of music at Paramount. And through Harlan, I got. I started with small score soundtracks that I put out Lion in the Darkness and Mother, a bunch of shitty records. This was a golden era in soundtracks. So it was actually yeah. tough to lose money on anything because you would at least sell 20,000 soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Rami and Michelle's High School Reunion, which I put together, 10 Things I Hate About You, which I put together. I put I put the Rami and Michelle High School Reunion record together for sixty thousand dollars and it sold two and a half million records. Okay, from so the profitability was insane because the compilation, the licensed pre-existing masters compilation business still actually existed. Now, of course, there's no such thing. It's playlists. Yeah. What do you need to what do you need to buy? Even though I sold a lot of the first Guardians of the Galaxy compilation, mm-hmm. the lattery ones. And as things have gone, what do you need to go buy that record for now when you can just throw together a playlist for free because you already subscribed to Spotify?
0: And they officially make them available through like the D- Disney and stuff or put them on Spotify for you to listen to. Exactly.
2: Uh, like, I, 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 I bought a
0: physical copy of Guardians, the first one, but the second and third were there immediately when the film came out. It's Exactly.
2: Yeah. didn't need to. So, you know, now, so now I'm, I've got all the authority in the world at Hollywood. I'm starting to do records for soundtracks for... Um, Fox and for Paramount as an executive soundtrack producer, executive in charge of music. So when you say what does that guy do? Well, in some cases, all right, I'll do the Lion in the Darkness score album. Well, it's a score you've already recorded. I'm just going to take the assets, master them, do up artwork, supervise my distribution and marketing, put it out, make some money. Hmm. So mm-hmm. So here's what happened with Mission Impossible 2. This is all leading there. So Harlan Goodman loses his job. And a new guy comes in named Burt Berman. Burt has a movie called Save the Last Dance. Mm -hmm. And the movie is an interracial love story starring Julia Child, Julia Stiles, who I called my little good luck charm because she was in 10 Things I Hate About You and I sold 500,000 10 Things I Hate About You soundtracks for just spending $35,000, okay? And um, Bert had shopped Save the Last Dance all over town and nobody wanted it. They didn't think it was cool. And this was the era of like hip hop movies and Tupac Mm -hmm. doing movies. And, you know, it just wasn't cool. It was kind of square. And, um, and so he couldn't get a soundtrack deal for it. And it was kind of an embarrassment to his bosses, the head of marketing and the head of production. I had kind of built a relationship with the head of marketing, um, from a small film called varsity blues. Mm -hmm. I jumped in, did varsity blues because they called me up and said, we can't make a record deal for it. It's a football movie about East Texas, East Texas college, um, um, um high school football. It's gonna be a rock soundtrack. Nobody thinks it's a good movie, nobody wants to do it. And I said, I'll do it. And they said, okay. And about two weeks after I committed to it, I got a call from their marketing department. They said, Hey, great news. MTV is gonna sign on to the movie. It's now gonna be branded an MTV movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Baby, doesn't that mean that all I have to do is produce a music video and they'll put it in heavy rotation? Yes. So it was like, great. So I called my friend who managed Green Day. They were on like the third single from their album. Warner Brothers was already like, all right, it's the album's petering out in sales. We don't really want to spend money on a music video. I said, if I step up with the money for a music video, will you license me the song free for spots and for the movie? but I'll pay the $200,000 for the music video. And I went back to the Paramount marketing people, told them, and MTV and said, how about if I give you a Green Day single? And they were like, what? Absolutely. So I sold 2 million soundtracks off of Varsity Blues. So when Burt Berman couldn't make a deal, oh, do you have a question?
0: Well, I'm just going to follow I'm just going to follow No, no, it's fine. I'll just follow up with, with, with the Varsity Blues question because I don't know the soundtrack very well, but I'm trying to think of the Green Day song that was released. Is it Minority? Nice guys
2: finish last.
0: Ah, oh, damn, I should have known that. That goes with the film, too. Dang. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. I just had to know that. Go on.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. It's okay. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Actually, is it good guys finish last or nice guys finish last? I think it's nice guys. Nice, nice guys, I think. So, um, So all of a sudden, like I deliver for MTV and I delivered for Paramount and like this guy, Bert Berman kind of loves me, but he can't make a record deal for Save the Last Dance. And I get a call from marketing, the head of marketing, a wonderful guy named Arthur Cohen. He says, Mitch, can you stop by the studio for a second? I want to show you something. I'm like, yeah, sure. I go by the studio. He shows me the trailer for Save the Last Dance. And I'm like, wow, it's an interracial love story. Wow. It's... It's um, wow! It's fucking uh, Julia Stiles, you know, and it's a dance movie. It's about him teaching her how to dance, so it's music on screen. Um, I love this. He says Bert can't make a record deal for it. He can't find anybody who wants to do it. They say it's not cool. And of course, I coined the phrase. Well, that which isn't cool is sometimes the most broadly commercial.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah. Because cool is narrow uncool is broader than cool believe it or not so i said that which is uncool is sometimes that which is broadly commercial so i looked at the trailer he showed it and i said i'll do it he said well don't you want to see the movie and i said no i know what it is and he's like i know but like we don't have any money we don't it's okay i'll pay for everything So I became like the de facto music supervisor, doing deals with artists, creating songs, working in the cutting room with the director, Thomas Carter, finding this landscape. It also turned out that this film was the chairman of Paramount, Sherry Lansing. Her husband just died. The great filmmaker who made uh, French Connection, Um, I'm spacing on his name, but he'll come back and he also did The Exorcist.
1: William Friedkin.
2: Billy Friedkin, right, is married to Sherry Lansing. Sherry was the chairman of Paramount at the time. I didn't know it, but um, but Save Last Dance was her pet project. And she forced MTV to pick it up and brand it. Hmm. So now all of a sudden, again, I'm serving up Casey and JoJo. I'm serving up Snoop Dogg. I'm serving up music videos number one in rotation on MTV. The movie goes off and makes $150 million. I sell 6 million soundtracks. I look like a fucking genius. I'm just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And then that leads me to, I do Austin Powers. I do the first Austin Powers record. Like I'm now man about town. Everybody who can't find a record deal calls me because I'm one of those who believe nobody knows shit. I don't care if everybody in town passed i really could care less they don't see in it what i see in it nobody knows anything look at the greatest success stories of the outliers of our industry everybody thought jaws was a joke and would never happen nobody wanted to sign the beatles got put in the studio with a comedy mm-hmm. like you know like a, a stage producer george martin who was nobody you know everybody passed on no doubt Like, you know, like nobody knows anything. So I don't care that everything's been passed on. So I started getting a reputation that when studios got themselves into a tough spot, they'd call me. So through that, Zoolander, like like I said, Austin Powers, I had all these great records. And after Save the Last Dance became so successful, now Paramount is in production on Mission Impossible 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first movie had done really well. They're obviously servicing the biggest movie star in the world, Tom Cruise, because he owns the franchise. And now he's working on Mission Impossible 2. The movie's a little soft, it's not testing great. They're struggling. Tom, Tom is laser focused, and Tom gets what he wants. And Tom wants someone to do something with the Mission Impossible theme. Now, if you remember on the first Mission Impossible, they had Larry and Adam from U2 do an instrumental version of the Mission Impossible theme. So everybody's sitting back, everybody in town is passing, going, what are are we gonna be able to do with the Mission Impossible theme? Like, come on, give me a break. It's like Larry and Adam did it, it's an instrumental. You're not gonna turn it into anything that it's not. I listened to it, because I'm the underdog, And I believe, I said, well, I don't know what I'm going to be able to turn it into until I spread it around town and get some ideas percolating. So I said to them, I tell you what, I'll take it on, but I'll take it on given the following. If I crack the code on the Mission Impossible theme, I want to produce an Inspired by soundtrack. I know the movie is only going to take maybe one or two songs. Maybe a song at the opening, maybe a song at the end. It's not going to take more than that. So I'm not expecting it's a sound, it's a, it's a soundtrack that's going to be featured in the film. But I want to do an Inspired by Soundtrack because I think the brand is big enough. So when you're asking, what does an executive producer do? He's an inventor, okay? I'm inventing. I said, I believe in the brand. I have a relationship with Paramount. MTV is going to love this up. I have to find a way to crack the code. So I took that Mission Impossible theme and I gave it to Moby. I gave it to Dinosaur Jr. I gave it... I did like 30. I specced 30 different looks of the Mission Impossible theme to basically anybody you do it. At the time, if you had a cousin who played keyboards and wanted to take a shot, done. Let's see what he comes up with. So... One of the people that I gave it to was I had this friend named Jeff Quantness, who managed a band called Limp Biscuit, And he said, Fred Durst is a psychotic Mission Impossible fan. Like the old TV show, he loved the first one, anything to be around it. Could he take a shot at the theme? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. No question. Let's do it. Okay. give it Give it to him. In the meantime, I'm getting these calls. Hey, you know, Tom is, is, you know, Tom wants to hear something. When are you going to have something to play him? I said, I'm not ready. Well, I know, but why don't you play him what you have? No, I'm not ready. And then out of the blue, I get a call from Tom Cruise. My, my assistant says, somebody on the phone named TC. <laughs> he said he'll know who it is. He'll know who it is. And I'm like, TC? Like, Tom Cruise is calling you? What? Pick up the phone. He's like, Mitchell, Tom Cruise. I'm like, hey, uh, hey how, how you doing? <laughs> um, listen, I know you're thinking about working on Mission Impossible 2. I could really use a real music marketing tool. You know, this movie's for everybody. It's for teenage males. I'd love something that would really hit it right between the eyes. I hear you've been trying to get somewhere with the theme, which I need to do something with the theme. We have to do something with the theme. And I'm like, I know Tom, it's just, you know, you already had Larry and Adam do it. It's an instrumental. It's it, it's not like getting a song written for the movie. You know, if I get into the Inspired by Record, I'm gonna have a lot of songs written for the movie. And I'm sure we'll come up with great songs and great artists, but I'm working with the theme. You got to give me time. And he's like, well, can you play me what you've got? I'm like, Tom, I'm not ready. And he was really quiet. He said, I respect that. Okay. (laughs) When do you think you might be ready? I said, give me another 30 days. Okay. Why don't you call me when you're ready? Very courteous, understood. We hang up the phone. About two weeks later, Quantnets called me. He goes, oh, man, I'm about to make your day. I'm like, why is that? I got to send you I don't have the vocal on it yet. I don't have the lyrics yet. I'm like lyrics? <laughs> I don't have the rap on the song yet. The rap. Uh, what are you what are we talking about? I'm going to send you the instrumental to the Mission Impossible theme and the song that Fred and Limp Biscuit has created from it. And I'm like, "Whoa." And, and at the time, like Limp Biscuit is the most credible K-Rock band. They're not a pop group, man. Mm -hmm. They're right Mm -hmm. up my alley. They are a hard-hitting fucking rap rock band. And they were at the top of the game right then. It was right after Nookie. Okay, so...
1: And Woodstock, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay, so... So, like, okay, we'll send it over.
1: I get it. I put it on.
2: And it's one of those one-listen... You know, first off... Fred is so respectful. It's like. <laughs> like this fucking track. And then they go into that. And I'm like, oh, my God. This is like insane. This is fucking crazy. And um, so I. I, I, the way that I recollect this is so I called Harlan, who was consulting the company, even though Bert was in because Harlan had started the project or whatever. And Harlan said, we gotta go play it for Tom. And I'm like, well, okay, but it's not done. I gotta wait, I gotta wait for the lyric. You don't get too far ahead of this. You don't want to get too far ahead where where all of a sudden you're finished and Tom doesn't have a chance to weigh in. I'm like, dude. That ain't the way this is going to work. Don't say anything. Sit tight. Give it another couple of weeks. Within two weeks, finally, I get in what was pretty much that finished record with Fred's rap on it. And of course, I'm sitting there going, oh, my fucking God, this is a giant record. But now I gotta play it for Tom. Is he gonna understand it? Is he gonna he thought I he thought we were just do messing with the instrumental? Is he gonna un- so I got on a plane and I flew to Australia where they were shooting and sat down face to face with him and played it for him? And to his fucking good taste, he listens to this thing. He bare, he just kind of, you know, it's not like. So I'm sitting there like, ooh, does he like it? Does he not like it? Does he get it's hard to read the room? He's just sitting there, focused. Song finishes, he opens his eyes, he stands up, he walks over to me, he shakes my hand, he says, Congratulations. This is gonna (laughs) be huge. (laughs) He said, but one thing. I need Fred to change a lyric. Wait. What's the lyric you want You want him to change? There's a lyric where Fred is screaming. It's in the chorus. I know why you want to hurt me. I now I know why you want to hurt me. Because hate is all the world ever sees lately. And he goes, we have to eliminate hate. Hate is such a negative word. I, I just need him to change that part. And I'm like, dude, like... I just don't know if this... Well, let's meet with Fred. He said, I can be pretty persuasive. Let's meet with Fred and see. So, of course, I call Quantitz. I'm like, I want to introduce Fred to Tom. And Quantinitz is like, great, when should we be there? No, not you. I need you to send Fred alone. And it's just going to be me sitting down with Fred and Tom <laughs> because we got to talk through a lyric. Oh, Mitchell. Fred doesn't change lyrics. He doesn't change lyrics for anybody. I'm like, listen, my gig is to put these guys in a room together and mediate the conversation. Where it ends up is where it ends up. Let's just mm-hmm. get them in the fucking room together. Okay. Sends over Fred Durst. I'm like, Fred, dude, man, unbelievable. Listen, I don't know what Tom's going to say, but let's go in. We go in. We sit down. Tom gives his best thing. You know, this is such a positive thing. And like, I'm such a positive guy. And it's just this one lyric. It's just this one lyric that I just need you to change. And Fred goes, I hear you. I hear you. I appreciate everything you're saying. I'm not changing it. And Tom goes, wait. I thought, but you said you understand. Yeah, I do understand. And I understand where you're coming from. And I respect where you're coming from. I'm not changing it. This is this is a masterpiece. You don't ask Da Vinci to add more red. You know, you don't ask, you know, you don't ask Dan Gogh. Like, can you can you cover up some of the flowers? This is my art. Trust me on this. So, okay, I walk out, say goodbye to Fred, and I'm thinking like, fuck, I gotta walk in there. Tom's gonna pull the plug. He's gonna fucking pull the plug. And he can. I walk in and he goes, Let's go with it, make it happen. I said okay, but you know it's not just this. I'm going to do a whole inspired by record. It's going to be a hard rock and fucking record, Tom. Like this is like this ain't you know this ain't pop radio music. Do your thing. You've proven yourself. Go do your thing. So what? What was my next move? To get Metallica to write the only original song they've ever written for a movie. To this day in their career, they've only written one song for a film. They did it for Mission Impossible. How'd that happen? Lars wanted to meet Tom Cruise, and my lawyer is Peter Paterno, who's Metallica's lawyer. So I had the in. So I called Peter, who called Bernstein and Mensch, who called Lars, who then called me and said, if you can introduce me to Tom Cruise, I'll do a song for the movie. And I'm like, come on down. And, and <laughs> like, and so he comes down to the lot. This was, they had, they're doing reshoots in LA at this point in time. He comes down a lot. We meet in Tom's bus, just me and Tom and Lars. When you're with Tom Cruise, by the way, you feel like you are the only person in the world, okay? He's so genuine, he's so focused, he's so thorough, he's so 100% all in, and he sat there with Lars and had the most amazing conversation about movies, about life, about all kinds of shit, and I walked Lars out, and he's like, that's one of the greatest meetings and one of the greatest people I've ever met in my life, give me a couple of weeks uh, the band and I are in rehearsal right now. We'll work something up, and I'll come back with something. They came back with "I Disappear," and now I'm sitting there with Limp Biscuit and Metallica, going, "Oh fuck, this is just going to be gigantic." <laughs> and we like through Paramount and my head of marketing at Hollywood Records, Mark Adia, we set up this amazing campaign with with um, K Rock. That had never been done before so i was assured like heavy rotation on radio i was assured heavy rotation with video i kind of filled out the record with a bunch of other stuff and you know the uh the rest is history it was one of the truly it's one of the true great experiences of my life um and the, the kind of the cherry on the sunday was that every month hollywood records needed to have a sit down with michael eisner mm-hmm. who was the chairman of the company before bob eiger he's the guy who hired bob eiger and we used to have to sit down with michael and talk about our product flow and why our groups weren't happening and and michael in this meeting of like 50 people turns to me and goes. Can you explain something to me? Why would our competitors at New Line give you the Austin Powers soundtrack? Hmm. Why would, you know, what, why would 20th Century Fox give you, you know, White Man Can't Jump? Why would Paramount give you Varsity Blues and Save the Last Dance and Mission Impossible? Why? Would they give those projects to Disney's record label when they know that we're in competition with them? I don't get it. And it just looked like, and it was one, It's probably the most arrogant thing I've ever said, and when I, and I and I will never forget it. And I, you know, I've never been this arrogant before in my life. But he said, "I don't get it. Why?" Fifty people in this room, and I said, "Because I'm that good." Hmm. Yes, and he just kind of like he kind of just looked at me and like, what do you say to that? <laughs> like, well, what makes you that good? Why are you like, you know? If he would have asked, I would have said, "Fucking balls, a giant checkbook." I paid Metallica a million dollars for one song, which was unheard of. I paid Limp Bizkit seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. For for that song. okay. Balls galore, a giant checkbook and something that I truly believed in and a studio unlike my own, that when I collaborated with them, used the song in spots, put the music in the movie, did the right thing by the soundtrack, did the right thing by me because I did the right thing by them. And then Paramount, actually offered me the head of music job and i was like whoa you know i like these people i've had success with these people i got this woman at disney who's the head of music i'm just the head of soundtracks yeah i'm gonna go i'm gonna go to paramount and um so i started calling michael eisner to sit down with him and tell him I wanted to leave. I wasn't even gonna tell the doofuses that were running the record business there at the time. I was just gonna go straight to Michael to get out of my contract. And um, so I finally get the meeting with Michael. I go in, I say, I'm leaving to go become the head of music for Paramount. And mind you, Michael had come from Paramount. He used to, with Jeffrey Katzenberg back in the day, He the run production of Paramount. He said to me, no, you're not. I said, what do you mean? Like, Michael, no, I'm leaving. It's just like before. I've run my course here. We've had a lot of success. This has been great. There's no room for me to grow. I'm leaving. He said, no, you're not. Give me one good reason why I shouldn't leave. And he said, because Kathy Nelson's leaving the company, and we're going to make you the head of music and the head of soundtracks. You're going to have both jobs. And I was like, whoa, okay, okay. And then when I moved into that position, when you start talking about, well, what does an executive soundtrack producer do versus the soundtrack producer versus the music supervisor versus the head of music within the movie studio? Well, what do they all do? Hmm. Well, some of those people are executives working for the studio. The head of music is an executive who works for the studio. They're not an independent for most part, they're not credited on their movies. Their job is to make sure working with the director and producer and post-production people, making sure that music, that whatever the movie needs musically is delivered, is contracted, is, um, follows the protocols of how much publishing do we have to get versus not, administrated. They're responsible for delivering the music, which includes all kinds of stuff. You know, the soundtrack executive is in charge with working for a label as an executive, pushing his own artists and trying to sell records. That's the bottom line of the record business. Well, you know, the film studio doesn't really care if you sell soundtracks. Why? Okay. Hey, we sold a million records. We made $3 million. Woo-hoo! Hmm. Um, we're in the $100 million business. We're in the billion-dollar business. We could give a fuck about $3 million in soundtrack proceeds. What we care about is marketing.
3: Mm-hmm. What
2: we care about is perception in the marketplace. What we care about is attracting audience because that's what leads to hundreds of millions of dollars in business. If we happen to sell soundtracks on top of it, good for us. So – what you have is, I don't want to say that everybody's across purposes because they're not. They're actually all coming together to service the entity. But they have, beyond getting the music right, getting the music in, getting the music packaged, getting the music sold, they come at it with a different perspective of what their agenda is. And so when I shifted into the head of music and the head of soundtracks combined, um, it was a very executive capacity. You know, you're you dealing with 20 movies a year that your studio's producing. You're dealing with another 20 soundtracks a year that your label's putting out. You're, you're just not in the cutting room as much. You're prioritizing the projects. You have a staff of people who work for you you're moving the big important boulders around and you have a unbelievable team of people that are doing the nitty gritty on um, the granular level that is really helping things move along and get done. So it it is a vi- filmmaking in general is an extremely collaborative effort. You know, record making is a very insular thing in most cases, mm-hmm. it's just the artist and his producer with a little bit of, Conversation with an A and R guy, but it's a very insular process. Filmmaking from the get go is a collaborative effort that literally takes hundreds of people to execute, and so it begins to be an egoless thing because you're really just showing up to do your part of a bigger whole. And I respect talent too much, you know. I respect Jerry Bruckheimer too much. I respect Gore Verbinski and you know. Um, all of the great filmmakers, Chris Nolan, I respect them too much to ever try and be anything in their world except for someone who helps them get it done. I'll swim through a mile of shit if there's genius to back it up. And Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, it's, um, you know, an independent music supervisor's job is really just that. They are hired specifically to work on that movie, specifically to try and help advance the needs of that film. A soundtrack producer um, who gets a credit for that is oftentimes the music supervisor because they ended up, you know, when you're producing the music for the film, you have to service what the visual and picture needs. And then that tends to live as the element that you put on the soundtrack. Very rarely are you doing a different version that's just for the soundtrack. Sometimes you get into that with singles. But for the most part, you're creating music for a movie that then is placed on a soundtrack album to go try and make additional revenue, maybe bring some marketing to the party. But for the most part, it's really being created to enhance the playability of the movie. But the Disney way always was it was a tripod of priorities. It was produce music for playability, produce music for um marketing and produce music for asset consumption and monetization and kind of in that order you first produce because you're making the best movie you can make you secondarily produce with marketing in mind so that well if i need an end credit song anyways might as well go get a great artist might as well take a shot for a hit then the hit markets the movie and then lastly, with Disney, you know, in most cases, whenever we hired songwriters, we owned the publishing. If we hired composers, we owned the publishing. If we hired Metallica to do a song for a movie, we owned fifty percent of the master you know you 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 create that music for playability and marketing, but you do it with a sensibility of well, we're also in business to try and monetize uh the assets and we had god we had we've had some terrific terrific years of uh, you know changing gone is the you know that great soundtrack era where where you know you could put out a record and sell a half a million units of a compilation you know i think probably guardians of the galaxy one it was really the last compilation
0: mm, that was a real that was a real movement that album like uh, it was huge
2: I think we sold i think we sold five million records, and anybody who, who tries to take credit for that music is lying um I'm not going to take credit for it because the music was really chosen by the writer and director mm-hmm. from day from day one and I just happened to be the lucky guy who was at the record company who said, "All right, let's throw it together on a soundtrack. I'll pay minimal advances to the various record companies along the masters. Okay, 1500 here, 2500 here. Okay, I put together again that Guardians of the Galaxy record, the first record, $60,000 to put together, sold 5 million records at the time, which was still, you know, even if you want to call it ten dollars a record even though it was averaging more than that do the math i mean like whoa the profitability of what used to be in the music business from albums has completely shifted because now that the consumption has changed to dsps the digital streaming platforms and consumption you know what you what you now have is you know Miley's. i was just really miley cyrus's flowers Streamed something like 5 billion times. Well, at 0.0068 cents per stream, if you want to aggregate the highest paying platforms, which is Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, you want to kind of just bundle that together, 0.0068 cents per stream, which means every 175 million streams, it's generating $1.25 million in business. 175 million streams miley does 5 billion streams on one song you're talking about a 30 million dollar song before you're even calculating radio performance income so the wow. that's how the business you know once upon a time everybody was buying a dozen bagels then they started showing up at the bakery ordering one bagel at a time then they showed up at the bakery and said, I'll have one slice of one bagel. And like, that's that's the transition from the album business to the single business to the streaming business. Um, and it's still there. And the consumption is obviously robust. But now the same kid in China walking the streets, listening on that same iPhone that the kid in Iowa is walking the streets, listening to his iPhone. They're all listening to Miley Cyrus's flowers. Yeah, Because, you know, Back in the day, you had to walk into one of 28,000 record stores to buy a record. Well, and that's how the record business worked. that You had 28,000 entry points for a purchase. Now, for consumption, you've got billions and billions of access for consumption. And that's the business we're now going to be seeing, a gigantic singles business, an album business that really only continues because the artist wants to make a full album, wants to do 13 songs, wants to have something to tour behind, wants to have new material, wants to collaborate with lots of people. But, you know, they're going to have one or two or three songs on their album at best, if you're Taylor Swift, if you're Miley, if you're Ed Sheeran. You know, you'll have one or two or three songs at best that'll do the majority of the business. And then you'll have 10 other songs that do some streaming business, do a little bit, yeah, sure. But they're they're just not going to be the accumulation of the of the consumption and um blah 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 man I'm,
3: yeah, i yeah uh, <laughs> you know,
2: i hope i don't have one bored the shit out of you
0: no this has been fascinating it's, no 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 this is this is the school this is this is learning from the master here and I, you, know, you talk about like uh, singles. It's actually just all cyclical anyway, because if you look at how like the fifties and sixties, it was all EPs and singles they were doing. You wouldn't get longer form albums, with vinyl records. You'd get them, but they wouldn't be anywhere near as popular as EPs would be. Back in those, so you talk about the Beatles. You mentioned them earlier. They made their money with you know Twist and Shout and stuff like that. It wasn't, it wasn't the actual albums. And it's just funny, it's going back that way. But I wanted to to bring up marketing because I, I kind of want to get into the granular of the album, the Mi Two album, a little bit more. Just a couple more questions I had. Um, marketing being the first one, and one thing that the Limp Biscuit track and the the uh, Metallica track both have in common is they have music videos for them. Yeah. Which is part of the strategy, I imagine, for marketing the film because you know the trailer for Mission Impossible 2 has the Limp Biscuit track attached to it. That's helpful for that. But you know you've got you know I think Fred Durst even directed the video for the Limp Biscuit track if my memory serves. That's it um and I mean the I disappear tra- um video is one of my favorite Metallica trailers I mean uh, sorry music videos of all time but like were you involved in that part of the process too again yeah. the music videos done and yeah what was, what was that process like
2: Um well you know again um you know one of one of the big reasons why Tom Cruise and Paramount wanted to do music in the first place was marketing they mm-hmm. you know by nature they had an old title in Mission yeah. Impossible that had an older following from the TV series. Then then the Brian De Palma Mission Impossible came out and did really well and showed potential, but there was no guarantee about what would happen with a second one. There was no guarantee of a franchise, okay? And, um, and I think what they saw with that first Mission Impossible was it really did not attract the kind of teenage male audience that they had hoped. It turned out to be a little more intellectual, a little more adult. So Tom was committed to increasingly, and he's lived up to it to today, Tom was always committed to, well, the next one, we're going to blow more shit up. The next one, we're going to have this motorcycle chase. The next one... We're gonna have a helicopter stunt. And I'm gonna leap off the fucking tallest building in the world. Like, he, you know, he was reeling in international audience and also sent high sensibility teen male and 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 you know male ah, trying to trying to attract men. <laughs> and so um, the the whole em- emphasis of doing music in the first place for Mission Impossible two and why. I fit so well with them was that I was a studio mentality guy. I'd already been selling tons of soundtracks. I knew the power of music. I knew the power of the demographic that it, so I could speak all of their languages, Mm -hmm. which put me in a great place to be able to not just get Metallica to do a song for the movie, but then to say, let's make a music video. Let's make the right one. And I remember arguing with uh, Lars, because I think he came up with the concept. If if you think about what that music video is, you know what it is? It's a takeoff of Bullet. It's a takeoff of Steve McQueen's movie Bullet. Mm -hmm. I green Mustang, this to San Francisco. It's like, it has fucking nothing to do with Mission Impossible. It was like... (laughs) It was like, I remember the art. It was like, dude, fucking do a video. And, and the thing is, at the time that we made the video, you'll laugh at this. So both songs are in the movie. Mm-hmm. Limp biscuit is in the movie at the beginning when he's scaling, When he okay? And Metallica is in the movie at the end. Mm-hmm. I believe it's how it worked out. At the time, Metallica's song was not in the movie yet, and Tom was not committed to using it in the film. And so when we went to make the music video, Lars was kind of like, look, we're happy to be involved. We're glad it's a hit. We're glad you guys got a big K-Rock promotion. We said we'd do it. It's inspired by record. We get it. Yeah, we're not in the movie. Like, we're going to make our own fucking video, and, we're gonna, and you're going to pay for it. And it was like, oh, God, man. And so I had to do a lot of back and forth with Tom because by this point, Tom had a great relationship with Tom. I would call him regularly. He would call me. We'd meet secretly. You know, he he had this ninja dude that was his handler who was like, you know, when you got the call from a fucking ninja, you know, uh, TC is requesting your presence. It's like, okay, where and when, Uh, you know. (laughs) tonight at fucking midnight you know it was it it, it was a lot of that kind of elite movie star bigger than Mm -hmm. life type of thing and i was happy to show up wherever because i'm just a portion of van eyes and look at me so i was always happy to do it but um yeah we um i had to do a lot of defense going back to paramount and going back to tom and saying look the music video this is what it's going to be and tom going but it has nothing to do with our movie dude the song's not in the movie you know, like, I understand where they're coming from. If you really want to harness the power of who Metallica is to attract, let them do their thing. Bet the fast horse in your stable, mm. okay? Just put your money on the fast horse. I'm paying for it. Just do it. Just go along with it. You know, the Limp Biscuit video was like a fucking joke. It's like a B-rate, it's like a B-raid spy thing, and he goes into the restaurant with the thing cuffed to his wrist. Oh my God, Tom, you know, Tom just was like, when he saw that video, he was like, <laughs> I spend all this money to make my movie look great. Look at this look, <laughs> look at this cheap shit. Vid-. And I'm like, again, you're don't, don't try to put your shoes in who the fan is for this artist and, and, and how, ha- where this video is going to be consumed. So Some of my job always is shrink Hmm? to be a mediator. It's to be the guy that understands all so that when you're talking to the various players and participants and part of the team who only do what they do, you can speak their language, but also speak all the languages and be able to communicate and, and have people reach the right decisions the best decisions. And um, but yes, so I was in the middle of that and I paid for the music videos. I mean, meaning I wrote the checks for the music videos as well. And they were not cheap music video. Well the Limp Bizkit one was cheap, but the um but the Metallica video was not a cheap video. I wanna say we spent close to a million dollars on that, you know, mm-hmm. just by the time everything was said and done. Yeah. And um and then, you know, uh, and then working with Paramount and Tom about the coordination and, the you know, it was tricky back in the day because you had to put out a single and it had to saturate it radio and then it would climb the charts. Today, you release something and it's immediately number one. And the question is, how do you keep it from falling? Mm. How do you keep it from falling? Back in those days, you put singles and videos out six to eight to ten to twelve weeks before the movie. Yeah. Um, if you believed in them and hope that you could grow it so that you were top 10 the week the movie was released. And that's where you knew you would saturate boldly. And I think with both Metallica and Limp Biscuit, I was lucky because we did this campaign. It it was a cross campaign between MTV and um K-Rock at the time which was the biggest alternative station in the in the world and um you know they virtually guaranteed me that I was going to be number one rotation out of the box but you know number rotation is just that like you go back to the payola era where um you know people would pay to play mm-hmm. and so theoretically you had a number one record because you were getting the most play and but was it really selling the most and then you know sales would fall behind sometimes it would be the equivalent you'd have a number one radio single and you'd have a number one album but every now and then back in the day in the 80s 70s and 80s what you'd see is number one radio play in a single or an album that just wasn't you know wasn't even top 20 and that's where you kind of knew oh okay they're paying they're paying for the spins not only that You were paying for fake reporting. They weren't even really playing the song 30 times a week. They were reporting that they were playing the song 30 times a week. So there was a lot of corruption back in the business in the old days. Today, it's all radically transparent (laughs) Mm. (laughs) because it's all tied together. The play is the consumption. Nobody listens to the radio anymore, Okay, you're 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 online. You're 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 looking at something on TikTok. You're looking, you're going to Spotify and listening to the latest release of whatever. You're, you know, who knows where you're finding it. And it's 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 honest to God truism as to how many streams. Now, it's not completely accurate that you don't know how long, in order to be counted as a stream. It has to be X amount of listening time. It isn't technically a full song. I've got kids um, who are actually older now, they're 30 and 25. But when they were younger, they used to drive me nuts because we'd drive in the car and you know they'd have their iPod wired up to the system in the car. Like me, I listen to the whole song. If you listen, if you watch kids consume music, Bam, 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 bam. They're listening to 30 seconds of a song. They're listening to a minute of a song. They're listening to a minute and a half of a song. Then they're on to the next one. Then they're on to the next one. Then they're on to the next one. So this, so even, even when you go to Spotify and hover your needle and it gives you a number, doesn't mean that's one billion full listens. That means it's one billion streams that counted as a stream, which means it met the minimum um um threshold not the maximum threshold
0: well they're they're like artists are writing songs for the sort of tiktok generation now i think sam smith wrote a song came out this year i think this a minute and a half in length and that and that did tons of stuff on tiktok and what snapchat whatnot it's just algorithmically designed um yeah. it's funny that the latest mission impossible films looking at the ai entity i guess it's taking over the music biz in some ways as well it's all quite programmed but i guess it was always programmed in one way or another and the other question i had about the limp biscuit track is you mentioned just uh, spinning off on of something you said earlier was you know you pitched it out to a lot of rock bands and alternate artists before necessarily the limp biscuit manager came knocking at your door you mentioned dinosaur jr you mentioned moby were there any of those tracks i mean first of all we'd love to hear what they pitched but like were there any of those tracks that you thought oh there was an opportunity here or was it really until limp biscuit turned up
2: limp biscuit and remember it was a process i was going to keep going until i found one i was going to keep going until i nailed one i wasn't really quite sure what nailing it was gonna sound like because again it's it's an instrumental track i didn't I didn't re- I didn't pitch it, hey, turn it into a song. Mm. Okay. I was just looking for someone to come up with a new take on it. And um everybody else's take was to do an instrumental version. Okay, Moby, instrumental version. Yeah, with some kind of weird background thingies, and and um somewhere I have the list, I haven't looked at it for a long, long time. Somewhere I have the list of everybody. There was 30 to 40 of them. And um, no, man, but the second I heard Limp Bizkit, even, even their instrumental, when when Quantinence gave me the instrumental track and said, the lyric isn't on it yet. I'm like, mm-hmm. lyric? Oh, yeah, he's got a fucking major rap rap and rock lyric. This thing's going to be a smash. I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to get a song not an instrumental track i'm actually going to get a song none of the other people who took swipes at it mm. um, um none of the other people who took swipes at it uh actually um delivered a song there was one moment when um after i had the track after i knew it was a smash and had all the wheels turning that um interscope records um because uh Olympus was signed through um oh god what's the name of the label um signed to a small label a guy named jordan sure a real fucking putt um <laughs> um he had this independent label
1: was it
0: elementary was that who it was uh cash money death jam flip records interscope uh, mojo records they had a few
2: and now I
0: can't remember
2: the name of it, but uh, all of a sudden Interscope realized how big it was, and or was going to be, and then they started threatening that they weren't going to give it to me. Oh, and little old me is sitting in a room with Jimmy Iovine. I remember this vividly, Jimmy Iovine, and um steve berman and i want to say gary gersh but that might have been i might be confusing zoolander and and um yeah because i had limp biscuit do a cover of frankie goes to hollywood's relax for zoolander for ben stiller for zoolander uh um so i might i think i'm getting but there was a moment when they all of a sudden Interscope realized how big it was going to be and were considering not giving it to me. And I had the little old me, I had to basically sit in this meeting and just absolutely threaten to go to fucking war uh with them. And fortunately, they came around and uh I don't know what made me think of that, but they 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 came around and uh and ended up giving us all the rights that we needed and uh had happy ever after. to answer the question? What was the question again?
0: <laughs> Just the, the you did alternate takes and things like. That, if any of them were ever close to being no, no, realized, but no, nothing,
2: no, no. nothing, nothing. No, and that such as such as a fucking real hit. I mean, a real yeah. hit speaks for itself, man. And you know, the best thing to do with a real hit get the fuck out of its way. And that was that was always my attitude too. Is that you know you go to talent to do something great, get the fuck out of their way. Don't try and, you, you know, your, your moment will come where your contribution will be required. But man, the best talent delivers. Every now and then they might need a little help, but the best talent delivers and get out of their way. And I think as we talked about with the process of changing lyric and the process of making the music videos and dealing with Tom, to his, to his ultimate credit, whenever i would basically say to him get out of their way if you really want to harness the power of what they can do and what they can bring to the movie from from a marketing standpoint get out of their way don't try and put mm-hmm. them in your box number one is they won't do it because you're not cool you're tom cruise it's mission impossible Two. that's not the world they live in they they only get one career you're going to work on lots of movies they only get one career and they're not. Some of these artists will not compromise. And when you're talking about Fred at that moment, you're talking about Metallica. Certainly at that moment, these are not artists that were going to compromise. They'd sooner walk away and say, "Oh well, didn't work out." Right. And then we, then we, we would be, we we would be the ones to uh, to lose. And you know, I'll tell you something that's very satisfying to me is that with all the subsequent Mission Impossible movies. Mm. Even the first time, nobody accomplished what I accomplished on that, man. Nobody accomplished what we pulled off on that fucking, yeah. Nobody, nobody, nobody did. And it, it was it was really a lot of reasons. We were an underdog, Hollywood Records, for Hollywood Records to have that record, for Hollywood Records to have a Metallica single, to have Olympia single, like we... You know, it's it's the miracle of yes. You know, there's, there's a lot of people in the industry that believe. Oh, anybody who had the Beatles would have succeeded. Oh, anybody who had you two, you know, go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The first thing you see when you walk in is a pass letter from Clive Davis to Paul McGinnis. I don't really think this band has any unique vocal sound. I don't think the songs are any good. Everything sounds the same. I wish you luck, but not for me. Right maybe one of the biggest fans that ever was and so you know so many things so many things have to go right and wrong to create the platform for something to um become big let alone pop culture phenomenon i mean you can't really chase pop culture phenomenon just do your best work and hope for the best outcome I never I'd never say that uh, Mission Impossible 2 was pop culture phenomenon because it wasn't nor was the franchise I would say that Barbie is pop culture Phenom mm-hmm, right percent okay my friend Kevin Weaver at Atlantic did that soundtrack spent a shitload of money on all of those tracks um that 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 uh that's really a good example of what would be considered the biggest kind of soundtrack in, in contemporary times, in today's times, that would really be considered the, the the greatest spend and approach to try and create the magic of the old of a contemporary big hit soundtrack album. And I still don't know if they'll make enough money to recoup all those costs. But um, yeah, and 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 clearly the movie didn't need it. <laughs> you know, like, no like quite true. There's no single the the Dual Lipa track. Yeah, it's okay. It's a little generic for my tastes. And it's not like it's streamed five billion times. Um nothing King club. That movie is just uh defies gravity. You know, it, it yeah it really does. But yeah, I'm very proud of Mission Impossible 2 in my life and my career, especially being an underdog. Um, look, it's nothing when you're head of music at Disney and Putting together Beauty and the Beast that you know is going to be a billion dollar hit, and you throw down to get John Legend and Ariana Grande in the studio to duet Beauty and the Beast. You know, yeah, satisfying. Got some big artists. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it great? It kind of lacks invention. You know, it's kind of just, you know, it, it's paint by numbers, following the dots. And there was a lot of that at Disney because that's the kind of place it is. It's a very commercial. Kind of studio it, it uh you know um i won't say no invention because obviously there is and was and you had to create a beast for live action and stuff like that but it's not the same as the real um god i was scrappy mm. god damn i was scrappy back in those days and really doing it to just defy logic and follow scent and thank god disney backed me because otherwise mission possible Park- Mission Impossible for Paramount would have never, ever happened if Disney didn't basically empower me to do what I thought need to be done with no authority. I'm sorry. I had all the authority. I had no one telling me what I could or couldn't do. And uh, there's something to be said for being able to own the, when people talk about control your own destiny. Um, doesn't always end up well, but on that one, man, that's one of the proudest projects of my career. And as you can tell, I love talking about it. I'm very passionate about it and that experience. And it's uh, beautiful to be able to sit with you guys and talk with people who actually still care about it, who are looking back 20 years. Um, uh, yeah, 23, yeah. Who are looking back and, and appreciating uh what we did even way back then it's really i i i can't thank you enough it's just a, a pleasure to talk about it and to be with you talking about it
0: we interrupt this program
1: to bring you a special report
0: red alert spyhards we are shaking things up over on the patreon page that's right we are launching an exclusive new
1: show where we tackle the exploits of the small screen's greatest secret agents like jack
0: bauer george smiley and beyond And don't forget every month you also get two Agents in the Field episodes where we decode the adventures of your favorite spy actors in their biggest non-spy movies. But Cam, tell the people what we have coming up next. Scott, we're getting a
1: little obsessive this week on Agents in the Field because we're looking at the 1958 Alfred Hitchcock thriller Vertigo. What heights of madness will this
0: episode climb to? So don't get left out in the cold, help, support your favourite spy movie podcast and join the circus at patreon.com spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, let's get back to the Spy Jinx. Well, I haven't had much of a chance to sort of blow smoke at you particularly about this album. But like, I mean, take a look around the instrumental was my band's opening track. Like we used it with the Echo Pedal. I had the guitar, that was me. I was doing the Wes Borland guitar style for that. And that was, you know, you birthed that at UN Lip Biscuit. And that's, it, it means a lot. And, you know, I I like a lot of music soundtracks. Uh, a lot of the ones you've worked on, I like, for instance, one job i had was Scrubs, the TV show. You've got your name on that. That's a very important soundtrack to me. Yeah. The, uh, Colin Hay, stuff like that, they are artists I've been listening to for as long as I've had that soundtrack. And that's thanks to, you know, I know. Kristen Miller and Bill Lawrence worked a lot on that too, from what I've been told. But, like, that's a. uh, If we have a chance, maybe I'll grab a question of you later on about that. But I I wonder if Cam has any more questions about Mission before I move on.
1: Well, I was just curious. We've talked, you know, obviously about Limp Bizkit and about Metallica being like the spotlight focus of that soundtrack. But just in terms of like assembling the other artists, because I mean, I was a huge fan of the Godsmack song, Going Down, the Rob Zombie, um, you know, Scum of the Earth.
2: How about the. uh, How about Have a Cigar?
1: Yeah, from the Foo Fighters, which started as a Taylor Hawkins track. Oh, really?
2: It was gonna. Be, it was a Taylor Hawkins track, and then it just progressed so great that they decided to call it Foo Fighters. When I first bought into it, I was buying into Taylor Hawkins. It was gonna be a Taylor Hawkins solo track, and then uh, and they just loved it and got caught up in the whole thing. And then I was fortunate enough to be able to they they let me call it a food fighters track which which was awesome um yeah you know um once i kind of knew i was making a hard rock record um and i had this big brand it it became just a pleasure to just reach out to managers reach out to record companies take solicitations take calls let, let people know that i was open for business mm-hmm. and and to have people call and say hey would you consider this artist? Hey, would you consider talking to this artist? Would you consider? And I was like, absolutely, yes, yes, and yes. I'm not going to make a commitment unless and until I hear something. And and the good thing about an inspired by record, the enjoyable thing about an inspired by record is, you know, it doesn't have to fit picture. Mm-hmm. When you have to fit picture, it's it's a completely different universe. Um when you can just get turned on, like I remember when the Godsmack track got got turned in, I was like, "Oh, I fucking love this!" In done, I want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a if it had to fit picture, well, I might take the pitch, I might hear it, I might love it, but then I got to go to the cutting room and I got to see if it works. And then maybe it doesn't work and I need an extra eight bars of the guitar part. So I got to go back and go, will you do eight more bar? Will you, ah, the bridge doesn't really work. We want to cut the bridge out. And the chorus doesn't really work. So we're only going to feature the verse into the B part. We're not going to feature the chorus. Then we're going to come back to a verse. Like there's an acrobatics that goes into um, marrying and uh, cultivating the right music for the sake of playability of the picture. Now, granted, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, you know, I used to go to a cutting room to sit down with my director and editor to try songs up the film, and I'd go in with a basket full of tapes to try lots of different things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, sometimes I'd go, I really think this works, and I'd play it. Does that work great? Look how it hits that moment. And look when he raises his arm and smiles his face isn't that a great moment? Doesn't that song work great there? And the director would go, eh, I don't love it. And then I'd play him something else and go, I don't think this works that well, but I thought I'll play it for your consideration. And the director would go, ooh, I really like that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and movie making in large part is a director's medium. Right, yeah. Every now and then there's a Jerry Bruckheimer. You know, every now and then there's an Uber producer that's really driving the process. But really, for the most part, it's a director's medium. Mm -hmm. And so you're there to help support that director, have his vision come true. Um, So yeah, so with the Inspired by Record, with the MI2 Inspired by Record, it became a real pleasure just to kind of get out to the industry and just like, what's out there? Who'd want to do this? Who, you know, this is what we're doing. Send it in, and you know, the other great thing is, Tom, with regards to the other tracks that were on the album, uh, Tom had nothing to do with it, he didn't, you know, only the ones that were marketing tools, only the ones that we were making videos for, only the ones that were going to be used in the movie. Did he, you know, because he was acutely focused as a filmmaker, Mm -hmm. um, and I was given free reign to just basically. Uh, float my own boat, pick songs that I loved, and um and and uh you know and, and enjoy the process. We did get, i remember, we did certainly get some other we definitely had um some other radio play that once we kind of caught wind um K-Rock really loved this up. but yeah, those were the only but we only made two videos we did not make any more videos
0: Didn't the Chris Cornell track get played? Because I seem to recall, because it's Mission 2000, I always thought that was sort of somewhat targeted for the, the film Well it
2: did and he was a major he was a major um, K-Rock Yeah, you know, a lot of the South artists
0: Garden and stuff Oh yeah, there, yeah, yeah. he yeah. was
2: a staple of, of K-Rock And, um, uh, you know, I I do remember that in some cases, you know, K-Rock actually, hey, would you be interested in this? Hey, you know, what about this artist? Hey, what about, I mean, to boil it down to 13 tracks, 15 tracks, how many tracks is on the album? I don't remember. 17. Believe you me, there were 100 tracks in play you know to get mm-hmm. to 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 end up filtering down to the ones that uh we got and um and then you know you start bumping up against against the digital limits of how many minutes of program you can actually put a cd which i think at the yep. time at the time i want to say was 51 to 2 like, what did say? anyways um you know i come i come from a long i come from a long playing album uh you know time and so i was really i still to this day i'm still in the long playing album so yeah there were a lot of um there were a lot of tracks in consideration that that ended up boiling down to the lucky ones who who made it like i said i didn't have to be at the mercy of picture or a filmmaker, to ultimately the mm-hmm. final decision of what went on in that record.
0: Well, okay, final question I have for Mission Impossible, and I'll, I'll move us on to sort of wrapping stuff on questions. For you now, looking back on it, and you talk about it being an important record to you, it's an important record to us, certainly, and I, I can assume a lot of our listeners loved it too. What's the track on the album that you're most proud of?
2: You know, I, I you know, I, I think I'd have to say um the Limp Biscuit track. I mean, it's not listen, I'm 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 obviously very proud of the Metallica one too, and really being mm. the only the only guy who ever uh, the only project that ever got Metallica to write an original song. Um but I think that because of the invention required And the threading of the needle and the miracle of taking that theme and turning it into that track and catching that artist right at that moment and that sensibility, you know, you really gotta, I really gotta respect the universe all coming together. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and so many things needing to go right off of a a task Mm -hmm. do something with this go make a miracle of this i you know so i think i'm probably most um um i think that one i hold in the highest esteem i think also because it was the first thing that i accomplished it also became a real proving point for me for my relationship with tom yeah, and um, and he really trusted me, and from that moment on, he really trusted me. I mean, it it really not that he didn't before, but I think in delivering that, and the reality of what we now had in hand, and what it was going to mean, and the response to it from just everybody, every territory of the world. I mean, everybody. Um, I think it 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 did a lot for me. So it was really. It was really more than just a record, more than just. uh um So yeah, I would say that that track stands just a little taller uh, to me personally than does the Metallica track. Though I'm obviously again very proud of that for different reasons.
1: Of course, yeah. right.
0: it, it makes sense as well. I mean, is the title track more or less on the album as <laughs> the lead track? It fires you in. It, it's yeah, it makes total sense. And you know, you, you speak of like the legacy in the way of this film the legacy of this film for a lot of people is this out right Yeah. It's what i mean because it's a it's a weird fm film you know compared to the other mission films slow-mo doves all kinds of stuff going on mission impossible too but people think about take a look around they think about i disappear and that's that's the positivity at all and, I, and I, that's what i like to stick to is the good stuff
2: well that makes me feel really good uh, because i agree with you you know, that movie, um, John is a great director, and it was stylistically very indicative of who John Wu was. You know, mm-hmm. I think he was coming off of face-off. Yeah. I had done face-off. I did the soundtrack of face off as well. And I think he was coming off of face-off and proving that he was a very, very, very stylistic filmmaker. And um, I think on the surface that made for a real promise of what Mission Impossible 2 could be. Like all movies, complicated movies big budget movies it had its problems and and Mm -hmm. nobody was really sure what it really was going to be and then it ended up really performing really well i don't think it goes down in history as one of the best of them i think always the original seed you know i think the first one will always be remembered because it was the birth Mm -hmm. of the franchise and then I think probably if you look down the line, it was um, well. Listen, uh, we'll see what number seven is. Number eight is it seven or eight? Part two.
0: Eight. Eight's the next one. Eight's the next one. Yeah.
2: Yeah, we'll see what it is. I mean, I think they're they're a little they're a little concerned because seven did not, especially coming off of Top Gun two. Yeah. I think they're a little concerned that it did not um, get a bigger audience, find a bigger audience. Um, I, but, you know, because of this digital world we live in now, I, I mean, I really think that what's old is getting older very quickly. Yep. And, um, and it, it is, it, in its own way, it's kind of predictable. And I think also the interesting thing is, I'm not really sure that there's a movie star in the world who just as a movie star opens a movie, I think it has to be a combination of that movie star, that particular title resonating, that particular moment. I think that all came together on Top Gun Two, and reiterated the notion that Tom is the biggest movie star in the world. So you know, oh my God, when Mission Impossible comes out, oh my God, I mean, geez, they were expecting that thing to just blow the doors down, and what ended up happening was it got kind of an older audience and it wasn't greatly received. And so now I think the franchise is up against it a little bit. And I think eight will be the end of the franchise unless something turns around or unless they then go to completely reinvent it, like a mod squad, you know, some young Mm -hmm. hip, you know, mission impossible nine, you know, the new team like, and, and try and catch lightning in a bottle. I just don't think, Unfortunately, I'm just, I am think Mission Impossible lives bigger cerebrally than it does in actuality uh, right now as far as uh, consumption. So I think they're up against it. But let me tell you, if there's anybody who'll figure it out, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise will figure it out. He is the, one of the most brilliant filmmakers ever in the history of the business beyond an actor. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what they pull off. I know they, that whole train sequence, they pulled out of two. I'm sorry, they pulled out of part two. That was supposed okay. to be part two. They put it in part one because they felt that they didn't have enough bang for the buck. And even by putting that into part one, which is what drove it over budget, now all of a sudden part two is thin. They're trying to go back and get more money to shoot more, and Paramount's like, ah, I don't know, I don't think so. You know, it's it's tricky. It's tricky business making those big movies. Um, anyways, what else would you like to talk about if anything?
0: Well, I I see the thing is we haven't covered the Austin Powers films yet on the show. So I feel like we just might have to book you for round two at some point to get that the Austin Powers story from you, because it sounds like it was quite an important album for you as well.
2: Oh, yeah, it really, it really, really was. Um, and again, it's one of those great stories where nobody in town wanted it. Everybody thought the movie was a joke. and uh, And of course, I was like, I'll take it. I'll do it. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, if if we have another conversation, maybe what I'll also do is I'll send you my filmography, uh, which is... I think I've touched 450 movies. Wow. I mean, because I was always... You know, once I left my kind of solo career and I was working for major companies, you know, I I, I basically you know, it was 40 years of touching 10 to 20 projects a year. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, that's why you blink, you look back on the career and you blink and go, oh, fuck. There's like 467 titles on this thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, God, I've been just so lucky, man. I uh, I've been lucky, but I'll tell you, I worked hard. I worked hard and I left blood on the field every day. And I was not a yes man. I was not a yes man. I was. A, I will kill for you. I will die for you. I will make my best recommendation to you. But ultimately, it's your decision. Whatever decision you decide, I'm behind you a thousand percent, whether I agree or not. That's the kind of worker I, I was. And uh, gosh, just looking back on it, man, I loved every day of it. I didn't love every day of it when I was living through it. But damn, man, now I look back, loved every day of it. Wouldn't change a damn thing, including doing this interview with you guys.
0: <laughs> well, you talk about like the blood, sweat, tears, the effort. That's you. We're the lucky ones for having you mm-hmm. here, to having this conversation. So thank you for that. I-, I think what we'll do in true Mission Impossible style, we'll have a part two where we come and talk about Austin Powers. So we'll, leave him, we'll leave him on a cliffhanger. Dig that it. story's out there. We'll bring it back. The last question I have for you, Mitchell, and this has been asked to every single person that's ever been on the show. Three years' worth of interviews. We talk about spy movies every week from Mission Impossible, James Bond, everything we talk about here. Mitchell, what is your favorite spy movie of all time?
2: Um, Spy movie. Um, Gosh, 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 gosh. Um,
0: And you've worked on a few good ones.
2: Yes, spy. I mean, like you—you don't—you wouldn't consider Inception a spy movie. Um,
0: it's got it is it, corporate espionage, it's, and it's—it's it's a James Bond riff at many points. You
2: know, it, it, you know, for I mean, I think, you know,
0: I—I I just,
2: uh, you know, I love. Just the, I'm the world's biggest, you know, Chris Nolan fan, and. Um, you know inception and the layers and i'm obviously friends with hans zimmer who's who score for that is just like mind-blowing mm-hmm. everything about that movie is kind of mind uh b- mind-blowing but um you know uh it, it it probably would um it probably would be um for whatever the reason it probably would be well of recent time i'll tell you a great fucking spy movie that just kicks ass and i love and i love the music in it was um atomic blonde
0: yes yeah great soundtrack
2: great soundtrack okay the 80s the 80s mm-hmm. and how about Charlize fucking kicking ass like she's uh like the 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 the, choreo- the the action choreography in the that's a spy movie the action choreography in that movie was like stellar, you know it's weird because it's kind of the same question people ask me do you have a favorite project of any film that you've worked on? And I'm like, God damn, there's so many of them. Like, I'm not doing justice by saying that, like, this was my favorite. I had movies that changed the course of my career that I, you know, that I could cite, and but they weren't always the biggest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody heard of them. And so, you know, I would say um, that, it, you know, how can you not love um, Goldfinger? No, mm-hmm. uh, like, like, you know, So, the, the, but, but again, you know, because I, I think I told you guys, I'm maybe be 65 next year. So that sticks with me because I was at a very impressionable age when I saw it. And then, you, and, and so, you know, I, I would have to say it's, 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 it's probably, you know, the greatest, the best, the, you know, it's, it's a bond, it's a bond movie because it was so influential. you know, live and let die. Uh, I loved. It's so funny because you remember those movies by the songs.
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: You know, you really remember those by the songs. Um, yeah, you know, I guess. I know that's a lousy answer because nothing really just... Give me to a part two and I'll give some thought.
0: <laughs> you are... That's what's good. That's it. You've, you've teased it now. I mean, you've said maybe, you know, Atomic Blonde, maybe Goldfinger. I I can't fault any of those, but uh, yeah, they'll have to tune in for part two when we do Austin Powers for the for the full answer. I'll give you some time to stew on it, but uh, Mitchell, I can say from Cam and myself, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, this is an important record to the both of us, and we want to thank you on behalf of our listeners, on people, behalf of people around the world for creating it and giving us uh, some cool music, because I discovered bands through this record. So thank you for that, and thank you for taking the time to speak to us today yeah, I'm in the same boat. This is a real honor. Thank you so much.
2: You are welcome. Thank you for the consideration and thank you for being genuine fans because uh, without without the real fans, uh, everybody would be making art music, movies in a in a vacuum just for themselves. The reality is you're you're making it for people. You're hoping it resonates. You're hoping that people you're praying people talk about it two weeks from now, let alone twenty three years. Okay, so thank you. I really love talking about it and I love talking with you both.
0: There you go, folks. Wowzers. What a chat. Mitchell Lee, we want to send our thanks to you for sitting down with us for about an hour and 45 minutes to talk all about one of our favorite soundtracks and really a big part of the reason why we have a soft spot for Mission Impossible 2. Definitely, and this was just not only was
1: were the stories about Mission Impossible Two incredible, hearing about Tom Cruise sitting down with Fred Durst to talk about the lyrics of Take a Look Around, but also just the Metallica stories and also that inside info on the Foo Fighters track that mm-hmm. you know was on the soundtrack. like there's a lot of interesting stories. But beyond that, what I loved about this interview was the way it was sort of an encapsulation of a very specific era. Mm-hmm. And Mitchell took us on a guided tour of, like, the way the soundtrack industry was working in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, right up until basically the final days of the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 soundtrack. Sure, yeah. And to me, like, this was an invaluable interview. You know, some we bring on where people will give us insight into, like, a script Mm -hmm. or a performance or something like that to do with a movie, whereas, like, this was, like, someone who was there right at the heart of an industry explaining to us the kind of the the rise and the fall or the kind of diminishing of that industry and so like this is this was one hell of a kind of educational interview
0: and i mean just to add to that i mean cam and i try to remain somewhat neutral in these discussions and in our reviews, obviously, we talk about the films, but as as people, we try to remain somewhat as a cipher in a lot of ways. We try to keep a lot of our private lives out of things. But Cam and I are huge, huge fans of, you know, certainly metallica and at one point in time limp biscuit i mean i still listen to him from time to time Foo fighters as well many of the artists on this soundtrack were important to us and remain important to us so it's i mean the soundtrack itself has had a lasting impact on me personally i can speak to i don't know about yourself it's something i still go back to regardless of doing this episode and so to get a chance to speak to the man who helped put it together to who wrangled in all those forces of fred durst of you know James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich and Tom Cruise. That's a big personality to deal with and he was the man in the trenches doing it and you won't get those stories from anyone else. I'm so happy we had this interview and I'm so glad he had the time to speak to us. And if you go through his filmography and look at the
1: sheer number of credits he has, the hundreds of movies that he's participated in the soundtracks for, like this is someone who's just played such a huge role in the world of movie music and to have that kind of insight was fascinating and We obviously talked a lot about Mission Impossible and some of the other projects he was involved in, but I do look forward to reuniting with Mitchell further down the road to discuss Austin Powers, another movie that has an incredibly iconic, you know, score in that case, and also some collections of pop songs as well. And I look forward to hearing his stories about bringing that together as well.
0: Absolutely. there's uh, looking like there could be a part two for Mitchell Lieb in the future. But uh, we hope you're happy with what you've had. We hope you're happy with the Mission Impossible 2 coverage over the last two weeks. Plus, we had a bonus little uh, episode on the new spy film from Matthew Vaughn, Argyle, that came out last week. And an actual interview with uh, Matthew Vaughn himself. So if you missed that last week, go back and check it out. It's in your feeds now. Uh, but that's, um, that's I think, our fill for Mission Impossible 2, Cam. But I guess the question becomes now, what's up next? Well. Uh, That movie was very
1: 2000, Mission Mm. Impossible 2, but let's leap up to the more modern day. We're going to take a look at the Gal Gadot film from last year, Heart of Stone. It was a Netflix film, and we did mention it on a debrief episode on the Patreon. We did a review there, but we've never talked about it on the main feed. So we are going to have a thorough breakdown of Heart of Stone.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this one. We've got a great guest joining us as well for the second time. So your mission, folks, to join us next week as we get a heart on and talk about heart of stone <laughs> and if you like what you heard on this episode and you want to support spy hards please consider joining us over on our patreon page patreon.com slash spy tons of bonus episodes from film commentaries to uh, non-spy film reviews and even now our new show oss where we take a look at spies on the small screen we've got episodes so far on the ian Fleming buy up at golden and very soon we'll have an episode on nick fury agent of shield yeah Hmm, what else could be coming you'll find out if you join us over on patreon that's just for those marvelous people over there and of course make sure you follow us discreetly as always on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but cam until next week officially i know why they want to hate me